You are now listening to The Big Trade with Peter Pham, enlightening conversations for maximum market returns. David, uh, welcome to the Big Trade series. Um, This has been something that we've been working on, uh, setting up this call for quite some time. I know you have a lot of insight and perspective on all these free trade agreements, um, going back from like the first one all the way up to the TPP. Uh, I'd love for you to give an introduction of yourself and explain, you know, kind of like what you've um, done over the last several years, because I know your background's very interesting as well. Well, first of all, Peter, uh, it's great to be on your show, and and thanks for having me here today. Um, Just by way of background, many years ago, I'm from Chicago, and I met this uh, skinny young state senator in Illinois by the name of Barack Obama, Um, and we became friendly. I worked some on his Senate campaign, and then I worked a lot on his presidential campaign, I went with him to Washington, spent the first year of his administration in Washington working in the White House, um, and then he was kind enough to uh, appoint me the United States Ambassador to Canada, where I served for four years, and uh, after I left uh, that position, I joined the Bank of Montreal, BMO, uh, as the Vice Chairman, and our U.S. headquarters is here in Chicago, where I live, and I my time between Canada and the United States and elsewhere around the world. Well, that, that's excellent. I, I'd love to hear more about um, your interactions with Obama as well. That, that sounds like a very interesting story. Well, actually, one of the interesting things I, I've always known about him was his kind of like uh, terrific rise to power, going from basically a grassroots movement all the way up to becoming the president of the United States, not necessarily going the conventional route. I don't know if you have any insight uh, for anyone that's listening in about how something like that could be executed? Well, you know, it's one of those, I I will say a couple things. First of all, when I met the now President Obama, um, you could have lunch with Barack Obama if you paid for lunch. The situation has obviously changed quite a bit over the years. Um, The thing that was magical was the 2008 campaign. I, when I started in the campaign, which was in late 2006, I recall my first meeting, there were four people, there were two desks, two chairs, and two of us sat on the floor. And my only contribution to the meeting, as best I recall, is that I lost the campaign's only key to the men's room. Um, but somehow or another, we recovered from that, and uh, um, he won the election, and he's been doing a great job ever since. I'm very proud of him and the things that his administration has done, and one of them, obviously, is TPP. Yeah, that's an excellent segue. I, I know you have been involved a lot with the original formation of the TPP, but prior to that, perhaps you could give us some background about what you've done with other um, free trade agreements and how they gave uh, came into fruition, and perhaps you can give like some behind-the-scenes look on what that was like. Well, you know, as the ambassador to Canada, um, one of the things that I dealt with literally on a daily basis uh, was the, or were, the benefits and occasionally the burdens of the prior regional trade agreement, the biggest regional trade agreement, the one that was referred to as Regional Trade Agreement 1.0, 
which is NAFTA, which is between obviously the United States, Canada, and Mexico. Um, and at the highest level, that has been an agreement that, as I always say, it was good for Mexico, it was good for Canada, and it was very good for the United States. Uh, I'm more familiar with the Canada-U.S. portion of it than the Mexico portion, but trade, the two-way trade between our two countries, Canada and the United States, has tripled since NAFTA. It has created millions of jobs on both sides of the border. And one of the things maybe we can talk about as we go along, but jobs that involve export are typically good jobs. They are high-paying jobs. They're the kinds of jobs we want to create. And so this was really a boom to American consumers, to American workers, to the economy as a whole. And I saw that literally every day. Um, there were some issues with NAFTA. Um, and, you know, NAFTA was negotiated 25 years ago. It just had its 20th anniversary, but there was a long period of negotiation. And many of the things that we take for granted today, for example, the Internet, in the information economy, they just didn't exist before. The, the importance of technology in our lives, uh, the, the need for labor mobility, uh, some of these things just weren't as important then as they are now. Uh, and uh, whether it is on the labor side, whether the environmental side, uh, uh, services, I'm in the banking industry now, and banking was not nearly as global then as it is now. And so there were just some holes in NAFTA. Um, and there was, there has been conversation over and over over the years about whether there would be some sort of renegotiation of NAFTA to fill some of those holes. Um, and in fact, uh, I think a way to characterize it is events have overtaken that conversation because with Canada and Mexico and the United States part of TPP, many of these issues in NAFTA have been addressed. Not all, but many. Uh, and, and so in some real way, assuming everyone ratifies the agreement, uh, we will have fixed many of the issues that, that people have complained about over the years. In terms of getting into uh, the TPP uh, discussions, uh, I was very involved. Uh, actually, uh, Mexico and Canada got in toward the very end uh, on successive days. Uh, there was a flurry of activity over the course of uh, a few days, and then sometime thereafter, Japan joined uh, to really bring big economies into this thing. You know, it started out as a very small exercise right. uh, among some very small countries. And indeed, uh, people used to make fun of it. You know, what do we need a regional trade agreement with Brunei for? <laughs> um, but it has grown dramatically as we've added large economies to it. Um, and there was concern on both sides, as there always is in entering into these agreements, about gee, are we going to get steamrolled? Are, are the Canadians going to make concessions on some of the things that are very important to the United States or the Mexicans or the Japanese? Um, there are, in all these countries, uh, so-called sacred cows. In Canada, it was literally sacred cows. So one of the big issues was dairy. Right. Um, but we worked very hard for a very long time um, 
Ryan Kirk was the U.S. trade rep at the time, um, and Mike Froman was uh, the person in the White House who was responsible for this, and, and Ambassador, they're now all ambassadors, Ambassador Kirk, Ambassador Froman, and me. Um, worked very hard with our Canadian counterparts, and they worked very hard with their Mexican counterparts uh, to get this in. And ultimately, um, everyone decided, and I think very wise decision on everyone's part, everyone decided that it was best if we all got into this thing together, among other reasons, because it was a way to, to fix up math. David, let, let me ask you um, a question in regards to one of these agreements. Um, as you know, and, and I've seen this and, and uh, you know, forgive me if I'm a, a little skeptical about all of this as well, is that I noticed that for big agreements like free trade agreements like this, we've only recently, the public has only recently been able to review the, the you know, thousand page document uh, pertaining to all the details of the TPP. Why is it that uh, for, you know, a big trade agreement like this, less information is actually disseminated and most people are kind of like guessing or, you know, I spent a lot of time in the Asia Pacific region and we're kind of like just guessing about what the potential benefits are. Uh, you know, anyone, when we heard about the agreement being signed recently, a bunch of people, you know, experts and specialists started to give their input, but the reality was no one really had access to any of the documentations uh, pertaining to the TPP. So it was all a lot of guesswork. And I guess my question is, who's actually involved in the drafting of the agreement? And why is it that you think that the public doesn't get more uh, transparency towards that until everything is signed and sealed? Well, let me, let me say, uh, let me break my answer into parts. First okay. of all, the who. Um, there are trade ministers in each country. Um, and the trade ministers and their staff uh, are the ones who negotiate this. And there are rounds of negotiation, and uh, I don't know how many, but there were a lot of rounds of negotiation. Mm -hmm. And so what would happen is, periodically, um, every couple of months, typically, uh, the staff and or the ministers would, at the beginning it was the staff, would negotiate, would sit down, they would negotiate, they would talk about, for example, there would be a, um, a meeting on the labor chapter, and they would try to come to as much consensus as they could, understanding you've got a dozen countries and some have very different views. Vietnam, for example, has a very different labor system than the United States, or Canada, yeah. or, or um, And so they would try to come to some consensus and they would figure out what they could agree upon and what they couldn't agree upon. Um, and that process it was an iterative process. And then as you started to move further down the line, the minister, the trade ministers themselves in the United States, that's the U.S. trade representative, now Mike Cronin, um, that the ministers themselves, with guidance from their political leaders, the president in our case, um, would sit down and try to work out the hardest issues. And, and there's, there's bargaining, there's horse trading. That's the nature of the deal, mm -hmm. uh, is horse trading. So that's the who, okay? Mm -hmm. The second question is, well, why is it secret? Um, and I, I would say it wasn't secret, it just wasn't, the, the texts were not disclosed. 
is, as someone who has negotiated a lot of things over my lifetime before, I used to be a lawyer, uh, negotiated a lot there, I negotiated a lot when I was in the government, and now that I'm a banker, I negotiate a lot here. Um, it doesn't work too well if you have to tell somebody who puts it in the newspaper what your ultimate positions are. Mm -hmm. um, so it's, it, it, it's, that's not a very effective negotiating strategy. Mm -hmm. And so by its nature, negotiation has to be, you know, you, you can't put all your cards on the table or you're never going to win. Um, you know, even Donald Trump would agree with that. Um, but so, so that's why it, it works the way it works. It, but the third point, and, and I really think this is the most important part, there is now an opportunity. The full text of this agreement is available. It's a thousand pages long. All of the side letters and side agreements are available to anyone who wants to read them. We are in the process of lots of people in lots of countries examining these very closely that ultimately, under the Trade Promotion Authority that Congress granted to the President, the United States Congress is going to have a say, up or down, in whether or not to approve uh, TPP. And they are going to do that based upon the input of large numbers of interest groups. And uh, you know, I can't speak to the process everywhere, but I know there is a similar process in Canada, and I suspect in most of the countries that are involved in TPP, not all the votes, um, there is a similar process. So, you know, th this notion that somehow or another something is being done in the dark, I think, is unfair. Um, that there was a negotiation that, by its nature, negotiation has to be done confidentially, but ultimately, countries have to approve this thing, and it's all out in, out, uh, in the public, and anybody who wants to go on the Internet, go to the U.S. Trade Reps website, and you can read anything you want. Sure, sure. Okay, so David, an another thing is we haven't addressed another elephant in the room, which is China. And as you know, a lot of Asian countries are a part of this uh, TPP agreement. How do you think, um, what do you think is the dynamics here in terms of China? Uh, because China is definitely going to be doing a lot of trading with many of the countries around Asia and also many of the North American countries as well. Peter, I think that Perhaps the most important outcome of TPP, more important than any individual tariff that's reduced or, or intellectual property that's protected or anything else, is the fact that the free market economies, led quite frankly by the United States, but that the free market economies were able to define the rules of international trade in the Pacific region. And that if China wants to join the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which I think everyone kind of expects they will, but certainly hopes they might, if they are going to join it, they're going to have to join it based upon the rules that were negotiated and are part of those thousand pages that I talked about before. And that is of enormous importance, that if the United States doesn't ratify TPP, then there is going to be some other agreement that the Chinese negotiate with some of these countries. And I can assure you, it is not going to have any of the protections or most of the protections that we hold so dear. So I think as a, as a strategic matter, as a geopolitical matter, as 
a broad-based economic matter, the fact that we were involved in setting the rules of the road with respect to international trade in the Pacific region is the most critical factor in TPP, and quite frankly, the most important reason why Congress should approve it. And David, when I hear this, though, I'm also thinking about the arbitrage. I'm thinking almost as an entrepreneur here. I'm thinking about being here in Vietnam, being able to import um, raw materials from China and actually ship uh, to the United States from Vietnam uh, Finnish uh, products in order to benefit from this trade agreement. Do you think that... um, I mean, do you see these things as opportunities as well for many Asian countries? Because some of them actually have a trade deficit with the United States. And I I don't know if this is designed to kind of like mitigate uh, or reduce China's uh, trade with the United States and actually boost um, the rest of Southeast Asia's trade with the United States. I I would not characterize it as an effort to reduce trade with China at all. Trade with China will be what it will be, um, but what it will do is it will make it much easier for the countries within TPP to exchange goods and services, and that you know that's why you negotiate. It is a two-way deal. You're absolutely right that, for example, Vietnamese goods will be uh, easier to export into the United States than the other eleven. TPP countries um, on the one hand, but conversely, it is going to be much easier for the United States to sell agricultural products in Vietnam, autos in Vietnam, uh, Mm. the the full range of services that we provide in Vietnam. Um, And so this is beneficial to both sides. You know, this is is why trade is good. it is the theory of comparative advantage that I learned about when I was in college about 100 years ago. Right. Um, that trade benefits all sides. Um, I do believe that. I, I believe that fair trade, anyway, benefits all sides. And in TPP, we have really the most forward-leaning, far-reaching regional trade agreement ever. I referred earlier to the fact that NAFTA is referred to as a regional trade agreement 1.0, and my friends at the U.S. Trade Rep used to refer to their negotiations on TPP as regional trade agreement 4.0. It was generations ahead. And by setting out fair rules of the road for all of the countries, I think that all of the countries are going to benefit. And, you know, in the example you gave with Vietnamese goods that are being shipped to the United States, that's good for U.S. consumers. Um, and, uh, you know, another fact that people sometimes overlook in an area that I'm a little bit more familiar with, Canada, people used to always say, well, if, if Canadians ship more goods to other countries, is that bad for the United States? And, and the answer is absolutely not. For every dollar that Canada exports, every dollar of goods and services that Canada exports, 25% of that content, a quarter in every dollar, is U.S. content. Mm-hmm. So they sell a dollar's worth of goods to Vietnam, a quarter of that came from the United States in one way or another. Uh, in Mexico, it's a higher percentage. Uh, so this, this is why trade is good. Thing, people 
buy and sell things back borders, and we're all better off because of it. Right. And David, when when I'm looking at this TPP agreement, I'm thinking about what then becomes a, a massive competitive advantage for countries that are trying to export a whole bunch of stuff to the United States, especially in Southeast Asia. Um, and when I look at this, I actually take a look at the currencies now, and and I'm I look at all the the members of the TPP, and I'm I think it's pretty safe to say that all of these countries, through their own monetary policies, have actually seen devaluations of their currency relative to the U.S. dollar. Um, some more than others, but um, most of them have actually declined quite a bit since I don't know. Let's just say since the year 2012, actually. Um, do you think that in order for some of these countries to get a, a leap, uh, now that the TPP or potentially the TPP is going to go into effect is that one of the countries would probably be strategically advantageous to continue to devalue their currency to add that extra basically kicker for anyone that was interested in importing their products. And then as, as a result, do you think that there, there's a whole thesis about currencies continuously basically going to zero uh, based on this idea? Well, first of all, uh, the relationship among the price of currency is a very complicated question, and right. I'm certainly not an expert in it. Um, and, and clearly, at least some of our trading partners, the one that is mentioned most often is China, um, have made some effort to devalue their currency to make their exports cheaper elsewhere. Right. Um, that's not a good thing. This race to the bottom is not good, it's not healthy, and in the long run, not healthy probably for the economies that do it. Right. Um, having said that, one of the things that TPP does is address this um, and make it harder for countries to devalue their currencies. And, and again, there are, there is a complicated mechanism uh, in place and a, and a series of rules, which I'm not expert in, but it does address that very point, which is something that Congress was concerned about. Okay. Yeah, because when I'm looking at the parties here, I, I see like Australia, Japan, Malaysia, New Zealand, even the Canadian dollar, as you know, um, Singapore dollar, uh, Vietnamese dong, they've all actually have depreciated. And, and one of the rationales, at least in Asia, that we're looking into, we're actually covering this as a thesis for uh, another uh, piece that we're doing is, is actually about um, the trade situation. And since commodities have declined so much and Asia is a massive exporter of commodities, then they're doing, they, they got to look at other mechanisms to stay competitive with each other. And when you look at the renminbi, it's actually done the best out of a basket of Asian currencies over this period of time, even though it is also devaluing as well. So I, I don't know, like I, you know, you've, I'm sure you've heard of Donald Trump. He's been a very harsh critic of the TPP agreement. He's saying that uh, the United States has gotten a very raw deal out of this. Um, so, so I'm really wondering here how the details of the currency thing uh, agreement like that and, and how that will restrict uh, currency devaluations, especially if you believe in free markets, you want these currencies to have like basically free float rather than being on some kind of like trading ban or range set by um, you know, the state or central banks here. Well, I, first of all, I wouldn't put a whole lot of stock in Donald Trump's views on TPP or much else, but uh, <laughs> be that as it 
Um, and I'm not sure he's, I don't know whether he's thought it through or not, but his, his level of sophistication and discussion about these things leaves something to be desired. <laughs> but, but we're not here to, to debate Donald Trump. Right. Um, you know, there are, as I said earlier, and I'm not an expert, but there are a lot of reasons that currencies go up and down. Right. Uh, and I think the most fundamental reason that currencies, whether in Asia or in Europe or anywhere else, uh, have devalued against the dollar is because the U.S. economy is the strongest economy in the world at the moment. Uh, you know, the dollar declined against those currencies in 2007, 8, 9, and because our economy has grown back, uh, perhaps not in the way that some of us would like, but has grown better than the economy really anywhere else in the world in any real sense. That uh, that is the most fundamental reason that the dollar is depreciating, and some of these other currencies are depreciating. But quite frankly, uh, you know, to get into the nuance of why one or another is is depreciating more or less, I think you need to talk to an expert, and I'm not that guy. Right. And and in terms of, um, I'm sure there's going to be a whole bunch of like uh, protectionists that will be. Uh, crying foul here. What do you think about um, the the global labor um, dynamics of the TPP agreement, and how what kind of effects could you imagine this having on on the labor market uh, globally? Well, that you know that's one of the things, one of the really good things about TPP. It has the strongest worker protection provisions of any trade agreement in history. Okay. Um, this is the largest expansion of labor rights in history. Mm. Um, For example, every one of the TPP countries, every one of them, including some that basically have no rights for labor, have to meet the core standards of the International Labor Organization's declaration. Mm. Again, I'm not expert in what they all are, but they have to do it, and they have to do it in a way that is enforceable in the same way as everything else in TPP. Mm-hmm. That every one of these countries has to give freedom to trade unions to collectively to form and to collectively bargain. And mm-hmm. there are countries like Vietnam, which we've talked about before, where such organizations have historically been banned. Uh, there are provisions against child labor and forced labor. Mm-hmm. There are requirements of living wages and safe working conditions. Um, and particularly for U.S. workers who already have these benefits, that what happens here is it levels the playing field. Uh, it makes it easier for our workers who do get decent wages and who do have um, uh, prohibitions against uh, uh, child labor and forced labor and who do have the rights to, to collectively bargain. It gives them a level playing field to compete against some of the workers in some of these other countries that do not have those rights. So, you know, this is, is it perfect? No, nothing's perfect. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, is it something that over time can be improved upon? I'm sure it can. But this is a giant step forward in workers' rights around the world. Right. And, and David, as as you uh, as we all know that you work for uh, a financial institution, a bank actually. There's a lot of uh, capital controls that are happening post 2007, 2008. Um, there's going to be uh, so much more restriction to the flow of capital. 
it seems as if the TPP agreement allows one to bypass that, but something like that requires a, a vast, sophisticated understanding of like the details and nuances of the agreements. There are going to be people that are going to criticize and say that an agreement like this is designed strictly for plutocrats and technocrats that can understand the great details on how to leverage the benefits of something like this, primarily like corporations and thinking about how to structure uh, multinational entities. What, what would you say to someone like that, even you admittedly not having read like the thousand page document to be able to exploit potentially um, some of the advantages that could be hidden in the fine print? Well, I, you know, I'm not one of those technocrats, um, but, but let, let me say this. Mm-hmm. First of all, you, know, you can make that, call it populist argument, against anything. Mm-hmm. You know, gee, uh, the the, the, the piece of legislation is 500 pages long. How somebody's supposed to read it? Well, mm-hmm. you know that's just the nature of when you're trying to deal with a lot of issues. Mm-hmm. But let me say this to your point: this, there is, for the first time, in a trade agreement or a regional trade agreement, anyway, uh, a chapter dedicated specifically to small and medium-sized businesses. First time ever, um, and in the United States. About 5%, 5% of the small businesses and medium-sized businesses in the United States export anything. Mm-hmm. And when they look at the fact that 95% of the consumers in the world don't live in the United States, you got to say to yourself, there is a huge opportunity for growth. Mm-hmm. And what this chapter does is it makes it easier for small businesses to export. It lowers the taxes on their exports. You know, one of the things we haven't talked about is that TPP reduces about 18,000 taxes right. that foreign countries put on U.S. goods. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it lowers those taxes. It reduces the paperwork that they have to fill out. Mm-hmm. It takes steps to deal with potential corruption in some of these countries. It reduces the red tape and customs. Um, it, it reduces the restrictions on Internet data flows. And, and fundamentally, it makes it cheaper, it makes it easier, it makes it faster for American small businesses to export their goods and services to the other TPP countries. So, you know, I don't think it's fair to say that this is an agreement that only benefits big business. It only benefits ultra-sophisticated folks, um, that it is designed to help small businesses, mid-sized businesses, and most fundamentally, American workers. Right. And as you know, David, I indicated to you that I'm currently here in Vietnam. Um, It would be really interesting. I'm sure everyone will want to quote you on this after we uh, complete this podcast and this story's uh, featured on Forbes, is what do you think the implications are with uh, Vietnam? It's, it's a country that obviously is a socialist state. They're, we're actually going through an election. Actually, 50% of the world is going through some kind of um, uh, general election as we speak, which is about 50% of the world's economy. Um, there's re- Vietnam's recently um, signed with the WTO. That was in the, the early 90s and 2000s. Um, equity markets have opened up for the first time. But as you know, there's going to be a lot of state-owned enterprises. There's going to be a uh, restriction to foreign ownership towards um, you know, assets and, and companies in a country like this, uh, very similar to China and the rest of Asia. 
Um, what what are your thoughts here on on Vietnam? Well, I, I'm not the Vietnam expert, although my son did just visit there relatively recently and, and came back very impressed. Mm. But um, let me say this: in, in whether it is Vietnam or others of others of smaller countries that have have a different financial system, a different governmental system, um, one of the things this does is it brings them closer. It's not going to make them into a U.S. or a British or some other form of democracy, but, but it brings them closer to a system where hopefully the Vietnamese people will do better. I mean, the goal of this is, and, and, you know, let me start, let me go back to something I said earlier, which is the benefit of NAFTA. NAFTA was good for Mexico, it was good for Canada, it was good for the United States. The goal of TPP is to be good the people of Vietnam and the people of Japan and the people of Brunei and the people of Peru um, and the people of the other countries in TPP. Um, and I do believe that if this agreement is ratified and we give it a chance, it is going to do that. Like any trade agreement, there are winners and losers. Um, there will be some dislocation in every country as people adjust some of these rules. You know, if you have an industry that was protected historically and now is open to trade, they have to become more competitive. Um, but net-net, when you take all that into account and you look back now, for example, with NAFTA 20 years later, I suspect that what we are going to see is a dramatic increase in trade in this region. Um, and it is going to raise the standard of living of people in all of the TPP countries. Excellent. David, uh, I want to put on um, my equities investor baseball cap on because at the end of the day, this is uh, an investment focus actually um, show. Um, what opportunities or trends do you think exist? I know obviously some of them are very obvious, but maybe we can just try to uh, state where you think some a massive uh, tidal wave of opportunities exists uh, for an equity investor to capture this this influx of of movement of capital or velocity of money uh, the world over. Well, you know, I, I'm probably not the guy to be picking stocks or even right. picking industries, but obviously, any business that has the potential for um, more export and where. The countries within TPP have been uh, unfriendly to those exports. There's going to be growth. I mean, take one example that I am familiar with from all of this: the American dairy industry. Uh, the American dairy industry, um, and for that matter, the New Zealand and the Australian dairy industries have very much wanted to export dairy products, cheese, milk, other products, to Canada. Uh, the Canadian market was very closed. Uh, there is a process, it won't be totally go away tomorrow, but there is a process for opening up the Canadian dairy market. Uh, and were I a dairy farmer, were I a, a U.S. cheese producer, were I uh, someone in that industry, that's something I'd be looking for. Um, auto parts, uh, 
uh, are going to be able to move more freely under these agreements. In some countries, um, I think that there is a tariff in some of the TPP countries yep. as high as seventy percent. One hundred percent, actually. We're talking in the hundreds. Um, the tariffs in yeah. some places in Asia are in the hundreds, as opposed to even seventy percent. And and so you know, if if uh, you're a car auto manufacturer. That's probably good news that those markets are going to be open to your goods. Uh, so there are going to be a lot of opportunities, um, and I think you're going to have to see how it plays its way through the system. Uh, but the first opportunity here is for the Congress of the United States of America to approve equal. And there is going to be a, a long process. There is going to be a drawn-out process. You will hear all kinds of uh, complaints about this thing some of them well thought through, some of them not well thought through, um, because, as I said, there are winners and losers in any trade agreement. The losers will think it's terrible, and the winners will think it's great. Um, and hopefully our elected officials are going to look at the whole of the United States economy. Um, but I think the next big set of issues, at least in my country, um, are going to be how does the Congress address this? When does the Congress address this? Uh, there is a process now for analysis of the benefits and the costs of TPP on the U.S. economy. That information will be made public. Um, that information, presumably, the Congress will rely on. And uh, hopefully, uh, um, in the not terribly distant future, we will be able to say that the United States has ratified the agreement, and we are part of the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Excellent. Uh, David, probably two more questions to, to cap this off. Uh, perhaps you can tell us about um, what you're doing at the Bank of Montreal now. I, I would be delighted. Finally, <laughs> finally something I know something about. Um, I am the vice chairman of the bank. Uh, bank of Montreal is the eighth largest bank in North America. It was founded in Canada. We still have the, the bulk of our uh, uh, assets and income operations uh, in Canada. We have a very large presence in the United States, um, which is growing. Uh, our U.S. headquarters is here in Chicago, where I live and where I was from. Uh, and I, my job is basically in three areas. One is uh, I am very much involved in managing the senior relationships of the institution, our clients, our customers, at all levels, in the investment banking side, and the wealth management side, the mm -hmm. commercial banking side, retail banking side. Um, I'm very much involved in that. Uh, I have some operational responsibilities at the bank, uh, and the, the, the third category is, you know, our CEO, Bill Downs, likes to always talk about the fact that every one of our 50,000 employees is an ambassador for the bank. comes a little easier for me, perhaps, than some having been an U.S. ambassador. Um, and so I'm involved in a variety of, of activities, some of them uh, organizations and not-for-profit organizations on a variety of boards. Uh, I speak, I, I talk to folks like you about what's going on in the world and, and uh, hopefully uh, and give, shed some enlightenment on that and raise the profile of the institution. But it's been great and I've been very lucky and uh, very fortunate to land here. It's, you know, there's always, uh, when you leave 
high position of government service, uh, uh, there's always, and people always think there's going to be a letdown or a disappointment and people stop standing up when you walk in the room and your jokes aren't quite as funny as they used to be. Um, but I have been very, very fortunate in ending up here at, at BMO and uh, I look forward to uh, a long and mutually productive relationship. And publicly, um, from what's available public, is what, what is uh, BMO's overall like growth strategy that you could share with us? Well, one of the things that I can tell you um, is that there are five big Canadian banks yep. and that they dominate the banking scene in Canada. There are a lot more banks in the United States than mm -hmm. Canada are economy. But uh, there are five big Canadian banks and each of them has a growth strategy outside of Canada. And they have to. Uh, and a large part of the growth strategy, not all, but a large part of the growth strategy of the Bank of Montreal, BMO, is to grow in the middle of the United States. Uh, that's why we're here in Chicago. Ah. Um, and that um, over time, we, we have been and we will continue to grow. We made a very significant acquisition a few years ago uh, of a bank that was headquartered in Milwaukee mm. uh, that very much increased size of our footprint here, and hopefully as time goes on, uh, we will continue to do things like that and continue to grow. Um, here in the middle of the United States, there are other parts to our growth strategy, but I, I think that's that's the one that is most relevant to the things I work on. Excellent. And um, let's, let's have one final question, and let's try to make it a fun one. Um, Maybe you, perhaps you could share like a really fun story about an interaction with like uh, President Obama or maybe some other prime minister or something like that. Oh, well, uh, let me. Um, I'll talk about my. Uh, actually, I will tell you a good story about President Obama, but it's about my wife. Sure. Um, the president came to Canada. Uh, I know the president, and my wife knows the president. The president came to Canada for the. G8 and G20 meetings in Toronto, mm. and uh, he lands at the airport, and my wife and I are standing at the bottom of the stairs at Air Force One, and the you know, reporters are all around, and uh, the president walks down the steps with Mrs. Obama and Michelle, and uh, gets to the, uh, the bottom of the steps, and I shake hands, and my wife is standing there, and he gives my wife a kiss. My wife looks at him and says, Mr. President, in Canada, we kiss on both cheeks. And he laughed and she laughed. And, and there, I have a wonderful picture at home of the president kissing my wife on the second cheek and everybody smiling and laughing. And uh, uh, He's a good guy and a great president. And uh, I was very proud to be a part of this administration. That, that shows a little bit of the European influence that Canada has by the double kiss, right? Uh, you you got you to gotta remember where you are when you go to kiss someone. <laughs> well, thank you very much, David. It's great um, having you on, giving some insight on TPP and what your bank is doing and sharing some stories. Um, maybe we can do this sometime I, soon. I would look forward to it. Thanks a lot, Peter. Okay, thanks. We hope you enjoyed this mastermind session. If you'd like to contact Peter Pham or Phoenix Capital, please email info at phx-cap.com.